Hi, I'm Michelle Fiordaliso, co-host of The When Is Now. I'm a writer and executive coach who started the movement The When Is Now as a way to help us live more fully in the present and find our purpose in a changing world. On today's episode, we have two people who have faced major health crises during the global pandemic. Andrea Wilson is a queer film producer and executive, most recently serving as the executive director of the Inside Out LGBTQ Film Festival in Toronto, Canada. In October of 2020, while in post-production on a short film and consulting on an industry initiative to bring together 50 top television writers with 50 leading behavioral scientists, Andrea was diagnosed with cervical cancer and is currently two weeks post-op from a radical trachelectomy. Tom Sulcott has been an actor for over 20 years with roles including the national tour of Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, off-Broadway plays, guest starring roles on shows like This Is Us, and most recently can be seen in an AARP commercial. Originally from Boston, Tom lives in Los Angeles. He spends these days of COVID writing, playing music, and spending time with his kids until he can reclaim the momentum of his career. In October, he underwent a radical prostatectomy. Hi, Tom. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. You. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Michelle. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And Zora Alunga-Reed, my co-host, is back from whipping the campaign into shape. And uh, <laughs> she's here with us today. And I'm happy to have her here. Happy to be here. Very excited to be back. So whoever wants to start, you're both newly out of surgeries and and still actually recovering. It's a crazy year to have faced a a health crisis that was not COVID. Andrea, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've experienced? Yeah, um, definitely with being in this pandemic and the impact on the healthcare system at large, it, it you know, it, it's really been a journey with a lot of unforeseen challenges and moments. Um, I went to actually get a, a checkup, just sort of a general checkup in September because I was about to uh, transition out of my job and my health benefits were going to lapse in a, a couple of months. And so with that on the horizon, um, I was like, I just want to make sure everything's up to date. And it had been a few years since I had had a pop. Um, and so I went in and got it and a week or so later got a call saying that the results were abnormal and I had been scheduled for a colposcopy, uh, and a biopsy. Uh, and I went in and and that first hospital visit was quite jarring because, you know, you can't have anyone with you and just going through the process of being in the hospital during COVID had uh, had its challenges uh, and its, you know, feelings of isolation um, and just unpredictability. Um, and I think unpredictability has kind of been the the key theme throughout the, you know, the entire process and that collective feeling we've all felt through this year as well. But following the colposcopy, I I got my results about two weeks later and October 20th, I got a diagnosis of cervical cancer. At that stage, I really got almost no information. And it was, it was a difficult experience because again, I was alone. I wasn't able to bring my wife or anyone with me um, into the hospital 
So, you know, getting that diagnosis of cancer, but really no information as to what was going to happen next. It was sort of, you know, you're going to get a phone call with another appointment, you know, you're, you're likely going to have to get a radical hysterectomy and, you know, more to come. So I was, was trying to process that information, but feeling very much like I couldn't, I didn't know what to tell anyone because I felt, I didn't know what was happening. I had this cancer diagnosis, but I really had no information. So it wasn't for another, um, about three weeks until I got, uh, my first appointment with my oncologist and, um, following her exam, she gave me the good news at the time that, that they felt that the cancer was at stage one, uh, with, with cervical, it's, uh, stage one B one, uh, which essentially they, they didn't think that it had spread beyond the cervix at that point. So she recommended for the surgery, instead of doing a radical hysterectomy, which they are less inclined to do for someone in my age, I'm in my late thirties to do the trachelectomy, which is just a removal of the cervix itself. So they scheduled that in for the top of December and I am now, uh, recovering from, um, that procedure and, uh, a few complications that occurred, which I can talk more about later, but, um, but now very happy to be recovering and just awaiting my next post-op appointment where I'll get my full pathology report. I guess I'm just curious based on, based on your experience and sort of the un- unpredictability, as you said, of, of the situation. I think, Tom, you could probably speak to this too. How did each of your respective diagnoses and processes sort of affect your view of the healthcare system and your relationship to the healthcare system? How did it change from, you know, your relationship to it prior to these experiences? What were your thoughts on it before and, and how do you see it now? I mean, I'll just just briefly say, you know, I'm I'm in Canada. I I live in Toronto, and the system here is is different than than that of the U.S. We do have have universal health care, socialized medicine, essentially. So, the, a lot of the steps of the process, um, and and you know, um, most significantly, I suppose the the costs and you know things of that nature is quite different. And one of the challenges. In, in kind of navigating all of that uh, for me is that, you know, my wife is American and, you know, we, we were just dealing with this feeling of like, well, why, why is this moving so slowly? Isn't there someone we can call? Isn't there something we can do? And it, in the way the system works here, you know, it, it, it essentially, the, the goal is that everyone is getting the same level of care um, and so there isn't any way to sort of escalate yourself through the system. And that's incredibly beautiful. And that has, you know, allowed me to get to this point in getting this amount of care, which I, you know, uh, wouldn't, you know, would have, would have struggled to, to access in, in other systems. But for, for me, not, you know, having been um, quite adverse, uh, you know, as a queer person to kind of putting myself into the healthcare system or having negative experiences in the past and particularly around reproductive health and kind of the treatment that you receive in that area. It, I, I, I won't say that going through this process had, has changed some of the, my, my opinions of, of that and the sort of heteronormative structure of these systems. Um, but I, individuals that I've encountered throughout the way have had a profound effect on me and in some of the care that I've received, for sure. 
My experience, I've had some bumpy roads when I was uh, first um, diagnosed. I was diagnosed back in 2018, right around this time. I had just gotten insurance. I picked out a doctor. I was on Obamacare at the time, uh, which was interesting because they're, uh, they're here in America, there are a number of doctors that didn't want anything to do with Obamacare. So there was um, a, a, a very thin margin of doctors that you can choose from. My whole thing was just to choose any doctor. And I got somebody that was near my home and I said, test me for everything. Um, and a good thing that he was mindful of, of testing me for cancer because I am a black man um, close to my 50s. I was uh, 49 at the time, 50, I was 50 at the time. And, uh, and he tested me and I, and I, uh, I, I uh, was positive for that. Uh, the urologist that I had uh, was a doctor who thought very highly of himself and thought it more important to deal with his surgeries than to deal with me, who was just um, diagnosed. At the time, my insurance was running out. So the day that I was to meet with him and get more information about what to do next, he didn't want to meet with me unless I had full coverage on my insurance. The scary thing about that, like Andrea, is that you know, you hear about cancer and people getting cancer, but when you hear about it, it's very scary when you don't get information about what to do next uh, in the moment. Unfortunately for me, I was to leave the very next day to do Bozeman and Lena at the Signature Theater off Broadway. So the next day I was on a plane to New York and strapped with this knowledge, uh, I was very nervous about what to do next. Um, so I let people know, um, the most immediate people that I thought were important. So I let my director know, and I let um, the artistic director know, and I let my stage manager know. And they were very supportive in just saying, just let us know what you need, and, and we'll take care of that. Thank God for my actor's insurance through SAG, my, my union. Um, I was able to get insurance through that and met with a doctor in New York um, and they shipped all of my biopsy uh, information to him in New York. And I thought it was a good sign. Um, I went to see this doctor and he gave me all the information that I needed and I, and I was put at ease at that point and put on active watch um, at that time. Um, active watch just means that when you're in stage one, when your PSA, PSA levels are really low, you don't necessarily have to do anything in the moment. Um, they put you on active watch for about a year and, and then you get another biopsy. And if nothing um, progresses, then um, they consider that um, um, probably a benign cancer and, and nothing needs to be done about it. So it was nice to get that information. I was, uh, I was at a uh, my mind was at ease to be able to, to get into my text and, and uh, do, good, do a good performance. When I got back to Los Angeles and got a new urologist, um, the City of Hope was amazing in um, uh, making me feel comfortable getting another biopsy. And even though it progressed a year later, they were, uh, my doctor was um, 
pretty amazing in giving me all the information on things that I can do. He gave me options. Uh, and that was five different options that I can have where I immediately went into doing research and was able to make a choice on what option I wanted to get. Um, so I went with uh, the radical prostatectomy and had my uh, prostate removed, therefore having all of the cancer removed. And then um, now I can consider myself cancer free. Uh, which is where Andrea is going to be pretty soon when she gets her follow-up. Yes, fingers crossed and, you know, love and light all around that. Um, I just got mine um, about a week ago and, and I'm elated with that. But being a black man and, um, and, my, and the relationship between black people and the medical field has always been, it, it, it can be uh, somewhat distrustful. And after that first experience of not having somebody to talk to with that first urologist that kind of sealed it. Um, but, but I'm glad that there were other people, individuals, um, like you say, Andrea, that you can talk to and, um, and ease your mind around all of that. And, uh, and that's important. Uh, cancer is such an unpredictable thing. You never know which way it's going to go. And my results after my um, procedure there were other some were some other bumps in the road, but um, was able to move past that. Yeah. Thank you, um, both of you guys, for for sharing that. I think one of the issues we sort of touched on a bit, um, but not not addressed directly, are the the inequities that are implicit in healthcare surrounding you know people of color, the black community. I mean, I'm I think of like the Tuskegee Institute experiments and the impact that's had on the vaccine coming out now and sort of this this mistrust within the Black community around vaccines. And then um, also when it comes to like female healthcare, like trying to find doctors who listen to women and understand and are able to sort of communicate. I um, have not experienced anything to the level that either of you have, but uh, I've definitely had some doctors who just were not interested in hearing my thoughts on my own health. Um, so I guess I'm curious not to put the burden of solving these problems on either of you, but um, if you could think of some ways in which the healthcare system could become more sensitive and more individualized and specific to people going through these things and, uh, and, and just more open to, to people from various backgrounds, um, connecting with them, being able to communicate. Is there anything you could think of that you wish had happened during your process or at any time in your life um, with the healthcare system that would have made you feel more, more comfortable, more, more supported? It's kind of a hard question. <laughs> it's a big one. I'm yeah. wrapping my brain around it and uh, saying, all right, where do I want to start? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm excited about. I'm excited about uh, more Black people getting into the healthcare system. I'm excited about even my daughter who's considering being a brain surgeon. That just gives more perspective, um, more perspective. That gives more immediate understanding injected into the healthcare system uh, of people's health. It's, it's kind of like when I think about being a black actor, am I a black actor or am I an actor that's black? And how, how can I have my story expressed more within this art medium? And the, the most immediate answer I have of that is having more black writers, having more black directors, or within the education of learning how to be an actor, 
how can I have more black material there so that I can have an immediate connection to my voice uh, so that I can develop as an actor. That's my first reaction to uh, how does the medical field change? Um, mm -hmm. the, the other is um, how do you teach sympathy within the medical field when you're learning how to become a doctor or a nurse? You have to go in with an understanding that you're there to treat all people that come in and are, are laying on your table. And that means letting go of any pre-misconceptions of people. Uh, and that's a large order that takes a very special person to be able to have that. If there's any kind of inclination, that impedes on your ability to do your job and to heal people. Uh, and then you question yourself, are you doing this to heal people or you just need a job? Or are you um, living up to a standard of what people expect of you? Um, there's a lot there that needs to be addressed. Yeah, that's, a, that's a large, that's a, that's a big giant to tackle, I think. Yeah. I, I so agree with you, Tom. And I, I think like in the entertainment industry, you know, it's, it's one of the, the reasons why these conversations um, are happening in the way that they are in, in our field is because it's visible. It's literally visible. It's so, it's consumed. But, but the systemic issues around training and teaching and how these systems are maintained, it's the same ac across every, every sector, every industry. And you're so, you're so, so right. I mean, if we're going to someone for treatment who was taught that, well, this is how you diagnose and this is how you communicate because this is the, the model patient. This is who you're treating, you know, and if you deviate from that textbook definition of that patient in any way, you know, that, that's, that's what we have to tackle. And the more that, you know, folks of all identities and experiences are able to be a part of the medical community and, and receive this training and get access and, you know, become our doctors. I mean, that's, that's what we need. That's, that's what we want. Like I, I personally was very confronted by the, the overarching kind of um, gynecological care principle of like, well, she's going to want to have a child. So that's what we care about. We care about preserving her fertility and it's like, you know, I'm a 38 year old lesbian who's ne like, I've, I, I, it's never been my plan to have a child out of my body, but suddenly every single person I encounter in the system is like, oh, you're, you know, your fertility, that's everything. And it's like, this is never something that's defined me. And I'm telling, I'm telling you that I'm communicating that, but the, the, that's how that field is, is defined and designed. It doesn't allow for variation. And I have friends, a, a very close friend who is a trans man who's gone through this same kind of cancer and him talking about his experiences is, is, you know, it's, it's, very challenging because the any any you know variation from that textbook definition of of you know this is how this is what patient care is and I, I think that's there's so many things we have to break down and change in, in the system but but you know I think I think you're so right you know we need people in the field that 
have lived these experiences and that is what is informing their approach yeah. to care. So, Andrea, do you have any other wishes for ways in which the medical community would become more understanding and empathic about LGBTQ issues? Well, I think taking the, there's so much, um, even just in language, there's so much that feels it either feels inaccessible or it feels like it's not for me. Like I, I personally you know, and and I know this is a common experience of queer people. Like I was not on top of going in for my like pap or my regular checkups because I wasn't concerned with, you know, having children and I'm not sexually active with men. And, you know, so there, there are these kind of um, communications and public health strategies and everything that are around, you know, this is why a woman needs to get these tests that is not inclusive. Um, Mm. and I think that's, you know, that's just one tiny issue, but, but, but it, it really has an impact because it just, when you're taught that like, well, I, you know, I don't either one of two things, either I don't need that, or this is not for me, or, you know, you've had an experience going in, like, I I mean, I can't even, you know, when I was like in my 20s going to Planned Parenthood, and, you know, they're incredible, um, and do incredible work. But even, you know, back then, there was still an element of, you know, the first question they ask is, is from a lens of, you know, could you be pregnant? And, you know, like there, there's just, it's, it's, it's so many of the steps are, are formulated around, you know, that particular lens. So I, I, I think for me, uh, that's been, been a personal experience and a community experience that, that um, I've come to know and come to, you know, hear from, from other folks in my life as well. So I, I think, that's, you know, a key issue. And, and of course, like within that, I speak from my own place of privilege and there has to be a deeper understanding of like inclusive language that goes beyond just, you know, the gender binary as well. I mean, if, if me as like a cis white queer woman is encountering barriers, trying to get care around my reproductive health, what are my trans family going through um, in, in trying to access this care? So I think, I think that's, that's part of the work for sure. Yeah, just going back to the notion of unpredictability in all of this, I'm wondering, and I think this also connects a bit to the One Is Now podcast and this notion of um, activation moments and sort of having a moment spark uh, change in a person's life. Uh, did you find that either of your sort of health crises or experiences brought other components of your life into focus or um, made you reconsider other aspects of your life, having gone through this sort of insane, unpredictable, life-changing experience? I really have to change the way that I eat. (laughs) And I'm very happy that uh, now I get to eat all the dark chocolate that I want. And vegetables, and um, I've really become very mindful about uh, the kinds of foods that I put into my body. Very, very mindful. These days, when I go grocery shopping, my grocery cart looks extremely different. (laughs) I think it's somebody else's cart. The other day, I went grocery shopping, and I was picking out some pomegranates. And uh, I never buy pomegranates. 
Um, so I thought that that was fun. And usually when I'm in the grocery store, I put my cart somewhere and then I walk around. So I'm not getting in the way of people pushing my cart all over the place. And I feel freer walking around. I get the pomegranates. I'm going back to my cart and I couldn't find my cart because the cart didn't look the same with the products that I had in there. So I had to, uh, <laughs> I was lost for a second. Um, but, uh, that has been a, a, a major change in my life and I'm learning how to cook differently. I make a mean gumbo these days. Um, less eggs in my life, which is very funny. I'd probably say that's the first thing. Yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on that page too. Like, <laughs> as soon as I got the diagnosis, I was like, what? I, I think a big part of it, and to speak to that unpredictability, it's like, what can I control? Yeah. And like, there's so many things I cannot control. I, I can't yeah. even control when I get information. I can't, I can't control what that information is. I can't, you know, all of these things, but I can control what I put in my body and what I yeah. put in yeah. my body. And like that felt, like you say, really good to like see that, see that cart, see all those beautiful green things. And yeah. um, I, I, st- I put the pause on drinking alcohol. It's been, you know, I put the pause on drinking alcohol as well. Yeah. That's, and that's a, you know, it's a huge lifestyle change. Change. Mm-hmm. Feel that. And, you know, I, I, I've definitely always been a, a workaholic. Like I, I, and I know how bad, you know, stress is for all of these, these things and, and trying to find a way to ease back on some of those things, accepting, you know, the, the pieces that just are. And then honestly, when I had some complications after surgery and I was, had to be really off like I I couldn't I couldn't work and getting like kind of slapped in the face with that and and Mm. it shook me but it also was like oh the world didn't stop right everybody's okay everything happened it's you know it's it's okay it's okay to actually stop for a second or a day or a week um Uh, yes, I, I, you know, the in, um, in terms of food, the tragic part were the things that I had to give up that I, uh, <laughs> I had to pass on me, and the, I was like, oh, I really want to grab that sugar, but I can't. Um, so sugar is out, and yeah, I'm a very active, active person. I run, I play basketball, I do martial arts, and drumming, do massage, and then blah blah, and then fatherhood is you know the whole nother level and i had to give myself well my body um after my surgery you have to get out and walk as much as you can and before when i could uh you know i could run five miles easily uh, now i had to you know i'd take a walk around a lake and i'd have to stop every once in a while and it surprised me it surprised me. And it, it's a big impact when you feel like your body is betraying you. And you have to, you know, you do a lot of forgiving of yourself. And you become patient. And you say, it's okay to stop and stare at the ceiling for a second. And let me love myself a little bit more. And loving myself means stopping and being still. Um, meditating more. and uh, And just taking the time to... You know, 
that old saying of stop and smell the roses is uh is is a is you you realize how powerful that that saying actually is um and then in time you uh you you catch your feet again but i i, I hear you i hear you on uh slowing down is uh is really important you realize you don't have to go and break next speed to get things done you actually get more done by taking your time and the quality of your work goes up when you're not multitasking um i like that a lot yeah i've worked in um very intense healthcare situations and have also experienced health crises of my own and i am always surprised by kind of wonderful moments that arise out of what could be really dark. And I'm wondering if either of you have an anecdote that you could share from maybe your post-op period uh, that was particularly moving or inspiring to you that would have never happened had you not been in this situation. Well, I, well, Michelle knows this, but I, I got married this year. I actually, uh, right, right before the pandemic, February 2nd, 0202, 2020. It's a powerful, powerful day. And my partner and I have lived like long distance really for most of our relationship. And she's based in LA and I'm here in Toronto. And since the pandemic, she's been here in Toronto with me. And um, so it happened that she was here while I was going through this diagnosis and, and everything. And we were together. And so I've lived alone a long time. And in the recovery, I wasn't really prepared for how much I would need her and how much I would need like really depend on another person um and so it was a really beautiful like surrender you know to that partnership you know you you if you make the decision to marry and commit that's that's its own journey but then being in this position so soon after making that decision where it was like oh I'm I'm literally in your hands like I I I can't get up and walk to the bathroom on my own um and and like you Tom I'm a super active person and that was was really a challenge and so that has impacted me a lot just you know knowing and seeing how you know how powerful it can be to really put that that trust in someone and and have them show up and be there um has been has been really really transformative i think for us and really surprising for me i'd say it was uh, with my kids um they've been i've been when I was first diagnosed, there were a few people that I told. I didn't tell a lot of folk. Um, I was very particular on who was going to know first and who know second. My kids knew first, and I've been keeping them up to date through the whole process. And after after my procedure, um, the time spent with my kids has stepped up a lot. Um, so. I've been baking almost every week and cooking with my daughter. My son and I, we, we, uh, we share more music together. Um, he's got a drum set in the house and we'll sit there and we'll play music all the time. And, uh, and 
with my youngest, we go on a lot of bike rides and we talk and it's, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we do a lot of things together, but the things aren't the thing. It's the time that we spend together that are the thing and the re-getting to know. And there is that sense of, okay, we got through this, but it sure puts a, a weight on the importance of us connecting with each other. And in the spirit of connecting with each other, I'm wondering if either of you guys have questions for each other. I mean, you obviously have sort of played off each other throughout this conversation, and it sounds like you have some shared thoughts and feelings. So it's the opportunity to, to ask each other any questions. I love that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, well, I, I want to ask Tom, like, what your, because how recent was your surgery? Uh, it was six weeks ago. Six weeks ago. What was it like for you being in the, ho- like, what was the hospital experience like? Like, did you feel like it's a pandemic? This is t- like more stressful, more intense or a- anything like that? Uh, the the Surprisingly, everything about the pandemic didn't bother me. Hmm. Um, I think because of the weight of the event made me focus on that more. I was crazy nervous, crazy scared. And when I got dropped off, that was probably the scariest part because I was disconnected from the people that loved me. And once I walked through that door, I was all alone. And yeah, I think that, uh, that's when I, that's when you bear down and become more strong Mm. and you say, all right, here we go. And whatever it is. And I turn my life over to you and here we are. Mm. Um, and whatever it is, is, and you believe that you believe in the best um, possible outcomes. I think at that point I started to remember of, of talking to other doctors and telling them who my doctor was doing the procedure and they would just go, oh, he's like the best mm. guy. He's Jordan with a knife, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I focused a lot on that. And um, I'd say the scariest part was when I was being wheeled into the, uh, into the, the operating room mm. and then seeing the robot that was actually going to work on my... Yeah. Did you have a robot as well? Same, yes. It was dude. Yeah. It's wild, isn't it? Yes, this, like this huge thing, this whole with room. tyrannical arms. And, yes. Oh, you can explain it up and down to me, but still, <laughs> when you're being wheeled into that that room, oh man, that is very overwhelming. Um, but everybody in the room were so upbeat and positive. My my um, the person who was giving me my um, what I'm, I'm, the word is is being lost on me the. The uh, anesthesia anesthesiologist yeah. was probably the most pumped in the room and mm-hmm. black men, which gave me some ease. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And I can tell he was, he was keeping me talking one to uh, keep me comfortable and two to know when the anesthesia would kick in. And I've had anesthesia before and it's so funny. I was sitting there going, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to tell when I close my eyes. And I didn't, it was just 
blackout and then woke up, uh, you know, a few hours later. But that was the experience. Mm. That was the experience. Um, uh, once I woke up and was on the other side, I felt I felt a lot better. Like, okay, this is done. And speaking to the doctor the next day and him breaking everything down to me was um, uh, felt very comfortable. My hiccup, uh, I'd say, is that they found uh, cancer cells that had gone onto my bladder um, that he found during the procedure, and so he had to do some. He had to he had to work his magic during that moment, and and so that's why when I did my follow up uh, a week ago, and he said that there was nothing found after my second PSA, that was that was the icing on the cake um, uh, uh, for me. Um, um, but there it is. That that was my that was my experience, and I and I, I see by your reaction that we had some uh, some similar reactions um, uh, on going through it. Uh, for you, I would I would I would pose the same question. What was that like? Well, I, I the I that moment of yeah leaving leaving my person being there alone absolutely you know kind of crossing over into that space and I felt very impacted by like being on the floor like the you know you're sort of in that space pre-surgery with everyone else that's pre-surgery and you know there's a guy next to me and he's you know in his early 20s like also with cancer diagnosis going through a surgery and hearing all, like I, I felt very impacted by not just everyone's presence but everyone being there alone you know it, it was like this our connection but also you know our our isolation like it really um impacted me and the the covid related challenge that I had was that my procedure was actually supposed to be a day surgery it's a six and a half hour you know, robotic surgery, but yeah. in, in, in Canada, it's it, trachelectomy is a day surgery. So I was supposed to go home the same day, but I had some complications afterwards and I had, I was allergic to some of the medication and it made me quite sick. So they needed to keep me overnight, but because of COVID, there were no beds mm. in the hospital. So they had to keep me down on the surgical recovery floor. Um, and the, the nurses were supposed to be finished their shift and they had to stay like three extra hours because they were trying to find a bed. And while they were there and I was stoned out of my mind trying to figure out what <laughs> they yeah. started decorating for Christmas. Like they were like cutting out stars of construction paper and putting them up all over the, cause they're like, we're here. We're here for three hours. We're not supposed to be, we're going to make this, you know, beautiful. Oh, that is awesome. So they're like climbing up on the counters, hanging up, you know, streamers. And it was so surreal. And <laughs> it was great. Just wild. And then eventually they did find me uh, a bed up in the cardiothoracic floor. So as a gynecological patient, you know, there's certain like care and protocols. And suddenly I'm with, you know, these folks that have just had heart and lung, you know, procedures. And it's very very different and all of that was because of the impact of COVID on the hospital system right. and like there was just no backup plan right like you know usually if something goes awry there's a, a structure in place and just he, seeing these these amazing nurses you know decorating for Christmas and then they're they're yeah. on the phone calling every you know floor do you have a bed do you have somewhere we yeah. can yeah. keep her yeah. I mean it was wow wow 
but it's nice that the universe blessed you with snowflakes. Isn't that it, great? It was something. I would I would have I would have been like, no, no, don't transfer me. I want to be here with the snowflakes now. This is good. <laughs> Yeah. This is fine. So sick, and mm-hmm. one of them, you know, brought me a little chocolate at one point. It was just, it was really. How cool is that? Yeah, absolutely. They were amazing, and seeing, you know, and that's just it, you know, being in the healthcare system. But when you get to see the humans that are doing the work, that are so incredible, and 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 really, I think not as appreciated as they should be. Um, yeah, they really made it all okay for me. Yeah, know, yeah, through that. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely done. Snowflakes. Well, one of the things that we <laughs> snowflakes. Awesome. One of the things we really care about at the when is now is how to live more fully in the present. And so as a last question, I'd love to ask each of you what 2020 has taught you about the present. That's such a huge uh that's such a huge question. I, I think of all years, you know, I think 2020 and everything that we've gone through as a society and as our communities, like the the learnings and the lessons, like we're still processing all of that, I think for sure. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I, I've definitely struggled from in the past that idea of like, I just have to get to this next thing and then everything's going to be great. You know, mm-hmm. whether that's, a huge deadline or a project or, you know, a relationship or whatever it is, you know, like I've just, I just got to, once I, it's crazy right now, but once I get to this thing, it's going to be amazing. And like, just, just always that pushing to get to that next thing. And what 2020 really forced me to stop and understand and acknowledge is that I, I have to find that satisfaction and that, and that love for, where I am right now and still keep pushing myself forward to, you know, everything that is to come, but not have my, my joy and my feeling of success or achievement be like just out of reach, like acknowledge everything that's happened, be grateful for it. Now Mm -hmm. that's, I think been, been a big lesson. Yeah. I'm, I'm still in process of, of it all finding balance Balance is a big word for me. I know what my desires are, and I'm going to hold on to my desires while I'm sitting here doing this podcast with you guys and knowing how that moves me through. You're talking about here and now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just taking in the blessing of listening to Andrea talk about her experience and know that I'm not alone in that and i can i can love up on that idea of snowflakes and how beautiful that is and how beautiful humans can be um hope is such a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing to um throw your surfboard on and and ride that helps keep momentum moving forward i think that i think that you know coming up in my pentecostal upbringing I can say that the devil doesn't have victory over me, over us. And 2020 has proven that politically, health-wise, family, and, and career-wise. All things are, are always working for our good at all times. And so we take in the good and the bad 
And when we learn from all of that, it just gives us contrast of, of how we need to um, conduct our lives. Um, and that's good. It's always all good. So I'm excited about moving into 2021 now because I, th- I feel like through all the experience of 2020 and health conditions and procedures, I have a better footing on how I want to walk, how I want my walk to be. And when my momentum starts back up again, I know how I want to, you know, I know how I want to sit in the, in the pocket for that now. So I live in high expectation of, of more to come in 2021, which is, which is a really wonderful thing, not just for myself, but for the, for the people that are on this podcast. We'll just start with you guys now. Yeah. And on, on that hopeful note, um, I'd just like to thank both of you guys for coming on. I really loved hearing both of your stories and thoughts on everything. And I wish you both the best in 2021 and the years to come. And all our listeners, you know, <laughs> get this year. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank you for being with us, Andrea. Thank you, Tom. You got it. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Love and blessings, you guys. The One Is Now is co-hosted by Michelle Fjordaliso and Zora Lingarid. It's produced in Los Angeles, California by Jack Zager. The next 21-day coaching program begins on January 11th. Use it to find your purpose in our changing world by signing up on theoneisnow.com. You'll also find complete podcast show notes there.